We're starting a new series today, and I've said before that I, I absolutely love starting series and, and frankly have been looking forward to this series for a while. What we want to do is take a fun look at some of the expectations uh, that we might have of Jesus. Now, this is especially important if we've been plugged into church for a while, because we probably have in our head these pictures of Jesus, not just physical pictures of what he looked like, but, but like how he might have or should have acted with certain groups of people. And so over the next four weeks, we want to look at four types of people or four groups of people and, and really, really figure out how did Jesus interact with those groups. Today we want to look at religious leaders, how Jesus interacted with the religious leaders. Uh, next week we'll look at the pursuers, those people who pursued Jesus. They were spiritually hungry, but they had lots of basic questions. Some people might say dumb questions. Uh, then we're going to look at the broken, those who were well aware of their mess, so much so that they felt uncomfortable talking to anybody religious, let alone going to Jesus. Completely unworthy, maybe. And then we want to finish this series in four weeks by talking about the oblivious, those who just didn't have a clue spiritually. They were just cruising through their life. They didn't know who Jesus was or what he was about or anything like that. And we want to ask the question each week, how did Jesus interact with these people? Because, see, we have these concepts in our heads of how Jesus did or should or could have. And sometimes those ideas we have in our heads, that's not my Jesus. Makes sense? Like that's not Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not actually true. But somehow we've gotten these uh, conceptions, misconceptions, misperceptions of how Jesus interacted with types of people. Now, uh, why is this series so important? Give me a couple minutes because maybe there's somebody in here going, This doesn't seem like it's very important, Chris. Why are we talking about how Jesus interacted with people? Can't we just read the Bible and understand it from there? Yes! The answer is yes! But sometimes we read Scripture with a lens that somehow has been adopted into our lives through years of church or Sunday school or or Veggie Tales or Jesus movies or whatever it might be. All good things. But sometimes they've given us these concepts of Jesus that may not be exactly true. So, so why is this series important? Three things, and if you have the North Point app, there's some fill-ins there if that helps you kind of connect in and you're a, a get-it-done person and want to make sure all the blanks are filled in. Three things, three reasons why I think this series is incredibly important. Number one, how we view or how we think we know Jesus defines how we relate to the world. In other words, the way that we think Jesus interacted with certain types of people will define how we interact with those types of people. If we're absolutely sure Jesus always condemned the fill in the blank, we will also condemn the fill in the blank. Are you with me? If we think Jesus was always so nice and kind to this kind of person, that's who we also will be nice and kind to. So, so how we view Jesus defines how we relate to the world, how we relate to others, etc. Number two, in our culture, there are issues of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame is huge in our culture from things in the past, maybe things in the present. Or the opposite side of the spectrum, sometimes we land in the, well, doesn't Jesus just want me to be happy? Isn't that like his goal for my life? Because these are so prevalent in our culture, how we know Jesus shapes truth. How we know Jesus shapes truth. So the things that we think are true or untrue about how Jesus views me, what he wants for my life, what, what he would have to say to me, how the scripture interacts in my life, that's shaped by how we view Jesus. 
Growing up, I went to a church, particular kind of church, and I remember that uh, I got this Bible uh, when I was part of this church, and it was a big, huge King James Bible. So if you've been around long enough and you're familiar with that, there you go. I'm serious. It was a big one. And um, and I had this picture of Jesus in it that looked a lot like, now, if you sat in the first couple rows, this is for you, the rest of you guys, you can't see this unless you have really great eyes or something. But hey, it looked kind of like this one. A lot more light-complected. It was that Eastern European feminized version of Jesus picture. Anybody else know this picture? Like, have you been around long enough in church circles? I think it might have been the only picture in the 70s and 80s. I have no idea. But it was this picture that I had of Jesus that sat in my Bible, and, and he had these long, beautiful, flowing locks of hair, and he had this really um, wonderful, pretty, feminine face. I can't do it, right? And, and, and he was obviously white. And, and so that was kind of my perception of Jesus growing up. And, and I, it, it tainted how I viewed him and truth and other people. And it was just a really interesting thing. So it's vitally important that the issues in our culture, like, like how we view Jesus is going to shape what we think is true or untrue. Here, here's the third thing, is that it's important to confront our stereotypes of who we think or know or assume Jesus is. It's important to confront our stereotypes. So important for people that have been part of a church for a long time, who've been part of church for a long time. Because we get these stereotypes in our head that Jesus always did this, or Jesus always said this. Always and never are really dangerous words. And, And so it's really important to confront the stereotypes that we have in our head of Jesus, maybe as this European feminine, weak, Republican, Democrat, fill in the blank. Because some of those stereotypes of Jesus, like that's not my Jesus. That's not the Jesus that the Bible describes, that we see in the biographies that are written about his life. Three ground rules, just, just setting up some reasons why this series is important, but three ground rules that, that, that only I could get away with maybe saying up here. Number one, be open-minded. For the next four weeks, we just ask you to be open-minded. Sometimes we get into a rut of what we think we know. Maybe it's because we've been taught that or we think we've learned that or we heard that from a pastor somewhere. But, but I want us just to be open-minded. Honestly, the teaching team, we're not entirely sure where this is all going in four weeks. This is exciting for me because I often get in the freeway and just start driving. I don't know where I'm going. So this is cool with me. Right? I, we don't have, we, we know the groups of people that we're going to interact with, uh, uh, but we're, we don't have like some agenda in this. We really want to learn right along with you, us, we, together. We want to confront all of our stereotypes of is this truly my Jesus? Is this truly the Jesus that God sent to earth and is described in the Bible, these things that I think about him? So be open-minded. Let's learn together. We'll put aside our assumptions. Here's number two. Get a sense of humor. (laughs) If you don't have one, we'll be selling them at the kiosk later. Cheap. I'll give you cheap senses of humor, but you know you get what you pay for. Get get a sense of humor because we want to have a little fun with this. Uh, We're going to poke some fun at our stereotypes of Jesus. Now hear me clearly. In no way are we poking fun at Jesus. None of us would be okay with that. That's not acceptable in my world. We don't don't mock Jesus, but I will absolutely mock my stereotypes all day long. I want to poke a little fun at it because humor is actually a tool that Jesus used. We might call it hyperbole or exaggeration. It It was an incredibly strategic Jewish teaching tool that Jesus used often, the idea of exaggerating to prove a point. So even the video that you're going to see this, or you saw this week, and you'll see some more <laughs> in subsequent weeks, like, like we're, we want to chuckle a little, little bit at some of our stereotypes. 
We'll present those in extreme ways. So get a sense of humor. And then the last thing I'd say is, is you're going to want to talk about these sermons in your life group. We're, we're going to say some things from the front that are going to hopefully challenge you and, and challenge me. And, and you're going to need a place to process those. Because if you just hear it, you go away, that you just, you just junk it, or you just say, ah, that was cool, I totally agree, or whatever. You're going to want to process those. If you're not in a life group, like today's the day, plug into a life group. Or if you're not in a life group, and you're like, I don't want to plug into a life group, just immediately grab the people around you right when you leave church and go, come on, I'll buy lunch for all of you. And, and go and talk about these things, right? Because you're going to want to process this a little bit. Because we're, we're hoping that we have dialogue and discussion and frustration and churn and, and, and confrontation, and, and it'll be good. Fair enough? Sound good? Let's jump into it. Uh, we want to we start by t- uh, looking at the group that we often love to pick on. The group is called the Religious Leaders. How did Jesus interact, respond to, deal with religious leaders? Now, already in your head, you have a thought. You're already thinking, oh, yeah, I know Jesus always fill in the blank with religious leaders. Let's just look at a couple of these situations where Jesus has an interaction with religious leaders. These are all in your app. Uh, the verses will be there. The verses will pop up on the screen behind me, or if you have a Bible, you can do that as well. We want to start in John chapter 10. Uh, starting in verse 22. This is, this is just one interaction with Jesus and some religious leaders. It says this. It says, Then the festival of dedication came at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts. Uh, sorry, I got lost. Walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are really the Messiah, just tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, But you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand and I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Now, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Like just one interaction, you see what's going on there. They're having this dialogue and they're asking Jesus, like, just tell us straight out, are you really Jesus the Messiah or not? And Jesus says hard things. He says, I have told you, but you don't listen because you don't believe. You're not my sheep. You're not one of us. That's a hard thing because this is the religious people. These are the religious people of the time. Now, here's what I want to do is expand our thinking a little bit because when, when the scripture talks about the religious leaders, we think of groups like the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, religious leaders. Those were all, all groups of religious leaders back in the, uh, the first century. They were, they were religious. They were political. They didn't get along with each other. They constantly fought. But, but they were these people that had ded- dedicated their lives to religion, to the Bible, to this pursuit of God. And it's interesting because sometimes when, when you hear religious leader, sometimes church people automatically think, oh, he's talking to the pastor. Oh, thank God, that pastor. I don't know. God, I'm glad you're talking to him this week. And we automatically sometimes think it's, he's talking to pastors and pastors are a problem. Or we think, oh, they're talking to priests, so that group of people, that's a problem. So I'm glad Jesus is addressing them, addressing them. But if we contextualize this concept of religious leader to a 21st century, the, the time that we live, if we contextualize it right, I think he's really talking to religious people, church people, people that have been plugged into a church for a long time. 
He's not just talking to pastors, religious leaders. He's talking to people that have made church, the Bible, God, a huge piece of their life. So the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, they had made, uh, they had made the Bible their, their job. They made religion their thing. It was a hobby. It was, it, was, it was huge to them, like in a good way. And so when Jesus speaks to these religious leaders, he's not just talking to the pastor. He is, absolutely. But he's also talking to church people. Does that make sense? I want us to think that because it's easy to just throw this all on the pastor, but I think he's talking to church people. So he says this to church people. He says, I did tell you, but you're not my sheep. You don't, you don't know me because you don't want to believe in me. And it's interesting because they hear this and they have murder on the mind. In verse 31, it says, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Stoning was this traditional thing back in that first century. They'd pick up big rocks and throw them at your head until you were dead. <laughs> That's cool, right? So they had murder on their mind. And it's funny to me because verse 31 starts with the word again. Like this is a common occurrence apparently when Jesus teaches or talks or speaks that people pick up stones to kill him. I gotta be honest, as a pastor, if that were the regular experience at North Point, I'd quit. I'm just telling you right now. If every week you guys are picking up rocks trying to chuck them at my head, now, now don't get any ideas. Some of you are like, we've been trying to get rid of you for a while. If I just get some rocks. But Jesus like, keeps going at it and it's interesting because he says to him, you don't, you, don't, you don't know me. Like this idea of I've said clearly who I am but you just refuse to listen to me. See, that still happens today. It still happens with church people today. I hear, I hear from church people often. They, they tell me, I wish God would just tell me what to do. I wish that God would just like write a letter and send it down to me. That was Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was the letter. And then they wrote stories, these stories about Jesus in this book that we get to carry everywhere because he knows we can't remember any of it. And so we carry it with us and we put it on our devices even. Like, like that's so funny. It's the same thing that folks were saying here in this interaction with Jesus, these church people going, just tell us clearly. And Jesus says, I've told you. But you just refuse to listen. It still happens Today, how about, how about another interaction with Jesus? John chapter 8, if you're just flipping in a Bible, flip back a bit. In, in verse 54, um, this is what happens. It says, uh, they're, they're in the middle of a conversation. I apologize for dropping in the middle of it, but I just want you to see this one thing. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you claim uh, as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him. I know him. If I said I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. And they say to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Really interesting interaction where they're having a debate about some stuff and it's things that Jesus had done and they're accusing Jesus of all these things and whatever. And in the midst of that, Jesus is, is clearly saying who he is. Matter of fact, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, that's him invoking God's name. Like, I am what I am, Yahweh. It's him using God's name. And, and the Jews understood it clearly because, again, they pick up stones and they're going to kill him. They have murder on their mind. But what's so fascinating about this story that I think still happens today is that they intentionally miss the point of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is dealing with, with who he is and, and how he does what he does, and it's because he and God are one, and they want to argue about how he's not old enough to have seen Abraham. That is not the point, and it doesn't matter. 
they go, wait, you're not even 50. How did you see Abraham? And I got a picture of Jesus just shaking his head going, guys, you're missing this. But it's got to be intentionally. Like they intentionally missed it because they don't want to deal with who Jesus really is saying he is. And so they strike up an argument about this little thing over here that's not a point and doesn't really matter much. See, I think that still happens today with church people. That sometimes church people, we, we don't want to deal with really who Jesus says he is and what he's saying about me and my life and how that needs to happen. Instead, we're going to pick an argument about this that doesn't matter and it's really not that important. Are you with me in this? Sometimes we argue about things that just aren't important. We intentionally choose to miss the point because it's easier than dealing with Jesus. Uh, one, one more interaction here in Mark chapter 3. Uh, Jesus, again, uh, doing some things. He's been teaching. He's been in ministry for a little while. In verse 20, this is what happens. Says, then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered, uh, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him uh, because they said, he's out of his mind. And then the teachers of the law, this religious church people, who had come down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed by the devil. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And so Jesus called him over to him and he began to speak to them in parables. He said, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying, oh, Jesus has this impure spirit. it's an interesting story. They're they're having this dialogue, and I don't want to get caught up in all of this other than it's interesting that the religious people, the church people of the time, are trying to find a way to minimize Jesus. Jesus is doing these amazing things. He's casting out demons. He's been healing people, whatnot. It's stuff that you just can't walk away from and go, well, that was fun. I mean, you got it. You're like gripped by what's what's. Oh, this is something different. This guy is different. He's doing amazing things, and they're, they're, they're religious people are just trying to minimize him somehow. They're like, oh, it's just because he's got the devil in him, so he's like casting out the devil. It didn't make any sense, right? But somehow they're trying to just minimize and put him to the side. And they have this interesting thing. It worth it bears saying. It talks about this sin that can never be forgiven. Maybe if you've been in church circles for a while, you've heard about this thing they call the unpardonable sin, and some people say it's this or it's that and this is the only passage that it's in and, it, and it's clearly describing the only thing that, that, that can't be forgiven in people's lives is exactly what these people are doing which is seeing Jesus for who he is and choosing to reject him at all cost. Like we'll come up with things to reject and minimize this guy because I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And it's not that Jesus doesn't love them and doesn't want to take them to heaven and doesn't want to have a relationship with them. It's that they don't want that. In which case, there is nothing left for them. Like, there is no other salvation. There is no other hope. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other way to fulfill the empty void in your life. Like, Jesus is it. And, and if a person comes up against that and says, okay, I understand that completely. I completely understand. I just don't want that. Thank you very much. It's, it's fine, but there's, like, there's nothing left. When it says that I can't be forgiven, it's like there's nothing left. There's no other option. And it doesn't mean that if that person somewhere down the road 10, 15, 20 years later has a moment and goes, wait a minute, what have I been doing? Jesus is everything. I'm in. I want that relationship. It doesn't mean like Jesus is going to be like, no, 
You blew it back in 1984. <laughs> you know, that's not it at all. It's really a person confirmed in their choice to completely reject Jesus, regardless of the evidence, regardless of seeing what's going on. It's like they know something is amazing and different about the Son of God, and they want to have nothing to do with that. That's what these guys are doing. Does that make sense? And in an effort to try and sweep that under the carpet, to get that out of the way, they're, they're just trying to minimize Jesus, and that still happens today. That still happens today. People who say that Jesus is just a good role model or a decent teacher or one of the many wise sages of our time or whatever. That's an attempt to minimize Jesus. So Jesus has these interactions with religious people. He calls them lots of names. Uh, He has lots of things to say to them. He calls them fools, hypocrites, blind guides, whitewashed tombs being like all painted nice on the outside but full of disgusting grossness inside. He calls them a brood of snakes or a pit of vipers. He calls them dogs. Here's my favorite. He calls them pigs. What a great, what a great thing to be called, right? He calls them whores. These were, these were all obviously negative interactions with the religious people, the church people, the religious leaders at the time. And so we get into our head maybe, well, then all interactions with religious people were bad. Therefore, like, religious people are bad because Jesus hated the religious people. But, but catch this, because not all interactions were bad. John chapter 3 we get this great individual that we meet named Nicodemus. And it says this in verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee. This is a religious leader. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is like the Pharisee of Pharisees. This guy's like at the top end of this religious group called the Pharisees. It says, He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with them. And Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. See, this Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a church person and is trying to figure out how to reconcile what he's seeing in Jesus with what he's been taught over the years about how this Messiah, Jesus, should act. See, for years they had heard these stories that when the Messiah comes back, he's going to come in riding like a a war stallion with a sword raised and defeat the nation that had them under rule and they were going to whoop up and the the Jews would again be in charge and they were waiting for this this conquering Messiah to come. But when Jesus came, he came came different than that. He, He came on the other side of how this Messiah was described, the side that they didn't love looking at as this servant and this guy in humility and this person that would save him internally and not the external stuff about being under rule of a nation but the, the problems of the heart. And so Nicodemus had been thinking of this conquering hero and then he sees Jesus who's doing these amazing God things but he's having a hard time wrapping his head around it and he comes to Jesus with an honest question. Help me understand this. I just got some questions. Now, sometimes our stereotype would make us think, So Jesus looked at him and called him a pig and a dog and told him to take a hike. But he didn't. He said, not my Jesus. My Jesus interacted with that doubt and that concern and those questions. And they end up having this huge conversation. If you were to read on in John 3, it's, it's rich theology. And Jesus helps, tries to help Nicodemus understand this by using the analogy of birth about being born again and Nicodemus is caught on the image and he's like, wait, you can't be born twice. That's weird. And, and they're having this dialogue and it's interesting because Nicodemus is staying engaged in the conversation and Jesus is staying engaged in the conversation. See, this, this still happens today. 
People who have been in church for a long time have honest questions and struggles and doubts, and Jesus is not bothered by any of those. See, when my, my kids were younger, this was one of the favorite things that we talked about was we'd, we'd talk about other religions, their friends who were part of other groups or whatever, and, and, and the constant thing that I'd say is, you know what, though, whatever your questions or concerns or doubts are, that's cool. Like, you can bring them to Jesus. I don't know any other religion that can say that. Most, many, you're told to not ask those questions. And like Jesus says, no, like, bring them, bring them. Nicodemus had questions, he had struggles, he had doubts, he didn't know how to wrap these things together, he was confused and conflicted, and he came to Jesus, had a dialogue, and Jesus engaged in that dialogue with him. But the story continues, if we jump to John 7, it looks like this, it says uh, Jesus is getting towards the end of his time on the planet, he's created enough ruckus that, that, that some of the religious leaders are trying to figure out how to arrest him and get rid of him because he's causing problems for them. And In verse 45 it says this, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who had asked them, why didn't you bring him, Jesus, in? Why didn't you arrest him and bring him in like we told you to? Verse 46 says, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied, they didn't know what to do with him. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing about the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? See, it's interesting because this Nicodemus had this interaction with Jesus. And, and I know he came at night because maybe concerned about how he'd be viewed or maybe he was just trying to find a quiet moment with Jesus without the crowds. I, I don't know, but something drove him to come late at night. Here he pops up again. Now he's stepped up a couple levels. Now he's having a dialogue with the other religious leaders who are like, we just got to get rid of this guy. The other church people saying, like, we got to minimize him or let's argue about unimportant things or whatever. And he says, man... Guys, like, like, shouldn't we bring him in and listen to him, hear what he has to say? Like, who do we arrest and condemn without doing that? Like, we want to hear what he has to say, right? Right? It's almost like Nicodemus is thinking somewhere in his head, man, if my buddies could just hear Jesus for himself, they'd see what I see. This still happens today. Church people, there's lots of us who say, hey, if my neighbor or friend or wife would just take an honest look at Jesus if they'd stop switch-tracking the conversation or avoiding the real issues, like Jesus would change their life too. One more interaction. One more interaction that we see. We, inter- we meet a new character in, in John chapter 19. It says this, uh, verse 38. It says later, this is after Jesus was crucified, he's died, he's, he's still up on the cross. Uh, it says later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. In Luke 23, it just gives you a little more detail about Joseph of Arimathea. It says that there was a man named Joseph. He was a member of the council, so he was an important Pharisee, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and actions. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Like This is a guy who was also struggling to figure out how to put it together, and he had questions, and somehow he must have had some interaction with Jesus because Jesus dies, and he's on the cross, and, and, and all the followers like fled because they're afraid they're going to get arrested. And, and there are these two men saying, like, that's not right. We can't just leave him up there. I mean, when someone dies, you don't just let their 
body sit in a park or something. Like, we got to do something. And these two guys go and, and talk to Pilate, who was in charge politically at the time, and say, hey, can we take care of this? Pilate says, fine. It's just interesting that these two guys are church people. Not every interaction Jesus had with church people was negative. And somehow, this Nicodemus that had asked Jesus these questions is connected to this Joseph of Arimathea. I don't know if they had like a secret society. I don't know if there was like a secret handshake or something. How did they meet up? How did they know that they were both interested in following Jesus? No clue. Bible doesn't tell us. One day I get to go to heaven. It'll be a guy on my list that I want to ask, what, what was that all about? How did you connect? How did you know each other? Like, did you put out secret pamphlets? I'm so curious, right? But somehow they had connected. And as Jesus dies, they're there. No longer concerned about how they're going to be viewed or what they're going to be looked like, but they're going to take care of this Jesus because they've developed a love for him that's so interesting. Not every interaction with the church person was negative in Jesus' world. And then we land on a guy named Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, that second half of the Bible. Paul, Paul was uh, originally a Pharisee. Matter of fact, one of the uh, up-and-coming leading Pharisee-type uh, guy. Uh, he wanted to serve God so badly, he decided he'd get rid of this Christian movement, went after it, was going to try and end it, but Jesus grabbed his heart. This is what, what Paul says about himself in a letter he wrote to a church in Philippi. It's called, uh, called Philippians, chapter 3. This is what he says. He says, if somebody else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, in their accomplishments, their own accomplishments, he says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, I'm more Jewish than every Jew who's ever Jewed. <laughs> That's what he's saying. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But, but, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Oh, I want to know Christ. Yeah, to know the power of his resurrection, participation, sufferings, being like him in his death, and somehow attaining this resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. This is amazing stuff from a church person, a religious Leader, And it's a great place to end because it's not about how long you've been in the church. It's not about how long you've been a religious person. See, Jesus didn't condemn the religious types simply because they were religious. Not my Jesus. He went after the issues of their heart because that's my Jesus. He went after those who were acting the part but their hearts weren't in it. Some of the religious types were all about Jesus and some were not. My Jesus dealt with each individual individually. And so the question that we're kind of left with today is, where are you? What kind of church person are you? Merely acting the part, showing up the church, playing the game, just going through the motions? Or has your heart been so transformed 
by this experience interaction with Jesus that you're forgetting what's behind, pressing on to know Jesus more. Man, that's, that's my prayer because that's who my Jesus is connected to and that's what changes lives. Amen? We're gonna sing a song and we'll be done. So if you'd stand with me, we'll sing.